0: In honor of spring break, uh, we are taking a break from uh, our series on Proverbs. And uh, this morning we are going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. It's one of a handful of stories uh, that appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Though this interaction happened uh, 2,000 years ago, what I think we'll find is that it has surprising relevance for our lives today because the rich young ruler asked a question that we all ask, one of the fundamental questions of life, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's going to happen to me when I die? And how can I know how I can get to heaven? Those are fundamental questions. It's not just a question that religious people ask. You know, you might be here this morning and you're not a Christian. I would imagine that this is a question that you have pondered yourself. What's going to happen to me when I die? Can I have any assurance at death of what will happen to me? There are a variety of ways that different religions have answered this question. And even the secular world has tried to answer this question. In 2006... Warren Buffett announced that he was going to give away uh, the vast majority of his immense wealth. He committed to give the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over $37 billion over the next 20 years. It was the largest charitable gift that has ever been recorded. When asked about his gift... Warren Buffett replied this way, there's more than one way to get into heaven, but I guess this is a pretty good way. In the gospel, according to Warren Buffett, the price to get into heaven hovers somewhere around $37 billion. So what about those of us who have slightly less than $37 billion? What do we do? Or even better, what do we do when our lives are a wreck? When we don't have $37 billion, we don't have anything. And even if we did have something, we wouldn't want to give it away. Because the bad news, according to the Bible, is that even $37 billion won't cut it. It doesn't come close to doing what God requires of us. The gospel of Buffett it's not good news at all. And so, is there any hope for any of us? This passage is actually really good news for us. It's good news for all who will hear it. And so, let's read this passage, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Hear God's word to us this morning. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, good teacher. And said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will find treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. with God. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this text, we know uh, that we need your help. We need for you to do what is impossible for us, for you to open our eyes and our ears to this text. And so we pray that by your spirit that you would come and that you would speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider this text and we get to know this rich young ruler, I want us uh, to ask three questions about him. First, who is this man? Secondly, how was he mistaken? And then thirdly, what is it that he lacked? And so first, who is this rich young ruler? I've been calling him Uh, the rich young ruler, but it's interesting that our passage this morning in Mark only says that he was wealthy. It it notes that he had great possessions in verse 22, but when we read Mark's account alongside Matthew and Luke's account, we see that uh, Matthew says that he's young, and Luke mentions that he's a ruler, and so when we look at all three of them together, we learn more about him, that he's rich and young, and he's powerful. He's basically everything that our culture values, youth and power and money. He's what we wish that we were. But it's not just that he's young and powerful and wealthy. uh, He's also morally upright. He is a good citizen. And as you read this passage, there's even some sense that he has some humility. He's got a little bit of self-awareness. He runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees and he says, teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? He knows that he lacks something. If elders in PCA churches were selected by a draft, this guy would be our lottery pick. He would be a number one draft pick for uh, elder. He would be your superstar elder. And you can even get a sense of this with the disciples in verse 26. They look around at each other and they're perplexed. If this guy can't get in the kingdom, what hope do we have? They're probably thinking, Jesus, why are you driving this man away? Don't you know that he's wealthy? Don't you know what he could do for us? He could take our little ragtag group of disciples and he could take us to the next level. We could be upwardly mobile just like him. But even though he's got what we might consider the ideal life, the perfect life, He knows that he's missing something. Even with all that he had going for him, when Jesus gives him the answer, he goes away sorrowful. He's grieved and he is in pain. He did not get the answer that he was looking for. So let's move to our second question of this man. How was this rich young ruler mistaken? There are at least three ways that this man was mistaken. First, he was mistaken in his understanding of goodness. He comes to Jesus and addresses Jesus as a good teacher. And Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And there's been a lot of explanations and why Jesus responded like this. It's actually a really confounding answer but what i think jesus is doing here is blowing up this man's understanding of what it means to be good the rich young ruler defined goodness horizontally he defined goodness in proportion to those around him he was good in the sense that he thought of himself as better than the people who were around him his goodness was relative and jesus says goodness is not defined by those around you goodness is only defined by God and God alone. And so if you want to be good, be as good as God is. You see this in the next verse. Jesus tells the man, okay, you want to know what goodness is? You know the commandments. And then Jesus lists half of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus lists what is known as the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the commandments, the first four deal with our relationship to God. The last six of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to one another. And so Jesus says, let's put your goodness to the test. How are you doing in relationship to other people? And that leads us to the second thing that the rich young ruler is mistaken about not just his understanding of goodness, but he's mistaken about his own record. Jesus asks this man, "How are you doing? How are you doing in keeping these commandments?" And in what I think is one of the most shocking statements in the entire Bible, the rich young ruler replies, "All of these I have kept since my youth." And I read that, and I want to scream in my best John McEnroe voice, you cannot be serious. All of these you have kept since your youth? Are you joking? How can you be serious that you have kept all of the law of God since your youth? It would be like Me saying in our service when we are called to confess our sins, I'm going to pass on this because I'm actually doing okay. You guys can confess your sins. I'm going to stare at the ceiling for a few minutes and you guys wake me up when the sermon starts. You would say that I was deceived about my own heart. I was deceived about reality. The rich young ruler obviously missed the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, if you have lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you've been angry with your brother, it's as if you've already murdered him. And so how does the rich young ruler get to this point? How is he so mistaken about his own record of righteousness? How is he mistaken about his lack of sin in his life? He does the same thing that you and I do, the same thing that we're very good at doing. We deny our sin by redefining the law of God. We look at God's law and we say, well, it can't really mean that. God doesn't really mean that we are to be perfect. He doesn't really mean that we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What He really means is that we are just to try our best, What really matters is that we perceive that we obey better than those around us. This man redefined the law. He redefined the law to make it something that he could manage. He lowered the bar to make it something that he could do. I had a vivid picture of this in my second year of seminary. A group of us took a trip out to Los Angeles to be a part of a Billy Graham crusade. It was to be one of his last crusades uh, large crusades that he did. And so each night, as we walked into the Rose Bowl, into the crusade, we would pass a group of protesters that had these huge signs um, proclaiming that uh, Billy Graham was a heretic and that everyone who was going into this uh, crusade was, was going to be uh, misled and that he was not being true to the scriptures. And so this was, a, to put it lightly, this was a really interesting group of people. This was. They were the type of people who just lived to get into an argument about theology outside of a Billy Graham crusade. But do you know that there's actually another group of people who are just insane enough to want to get into an argument about theology while walking into a Billy Graham crusade? And that is second-year seminary students. And so rather than taking the advice of our leaders and just walking by and ignoring this group, we thought, well, we are second year seminary. We have three years of seminary. What don't we know? We can obviously prove these people wrong. And so we engaged them in conversation. We come to find out that this group, this is a cult if I've ever seen one in my life. They lived on a commune in the woods, and they believed that they were completely sinless. That a part of their program was complete sanctification, and there is a sense that this group they, they thought of themselves as the rich young rulers who actually did what Jesus was commanding, that they sold everything to go live on a commune in the woods. but we started asking them as good second year seminary students, well, what do you, what do you do with a Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever been angry? Have you ever insulted anyone? And to each of our questions, they knew exactly what we were going to ask. And they had a different way that they redefined the law of God. They would say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. If you go back to the original language, it would say this. Or, well, the problem is, is that you haven't received the vision that we've received. And so you wouldn't understand that. Or you're not reading the Bible in the King James Version, so obviously you have a corrupt Bible and you wouldn't understand what we are doing. At each turn, they redefined... What it was to be good. They made it fit their own record. But as easy as it might be to look down our nose at them, we can do the exact same thing. I have a tendency to define my goodness, to redefine my goodness by my relative performance to those around me. I can look around and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. His life is a wreck, and my life is only slightly less of a wreck than his. We believe that we can pick and choose which commandments, which parts of God's law, the the parts of God's law that we feel like we can obey. That's what's really important. The other parts are not important at all. Wherever we are in estimating our own goodness, we can always find someone that we feel like is doing worse than we are. We can be just like the rich young ruler, just like the group at the crusade. We change the law to make it doable. We can try to redefine God's law to make it work. You know, it's not often that Saturday Night Live does a skit on the text that you are preaching, but it just so happens that back in the 1990s, uh, SNL did a skit about this very passage, and I actually remember watching it live, and it's too funny, and it's too true uh, not to read it, so I'm going to read the transcript of this skit. Um, That appeared in the 90s on Saturday, Saturday Night Live. Hello, I'm John Hayward, president of the Hayward Foundation, and I'm a very wealthy man. I'm worth billions and always have been, but I haven't always been a man with a conscience. I thought my money was all I needed to be happy, but all that changed one day when I came across this book, The Bible. And I saw where it said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That passage changed my life. It moved me to start putting my riches towards a worthy cause. And that's why I've established the Hayward Foundation for the development of a way to make it easy for a camel to pass through a needle's eye. I'm not going to hell if my billions have anything to say about it. We're doing God's work here at the Hayward Foundation. I found all these cancer researchers, made, it, made them stop whatever it is they were doing, and devote their energies to trying to force these camels through needles, just like it says in the Bible. I know that it sounds impossible, but we've made a lot of progress. We started small. We tried to cram a horse through a drinking straw. The result was pretty ugly and completely unsuccessful, but we learned a lot. Next we tried pureeing a camel into very into a very thin liquid and then pouring the camel through the eye of a needle. Sure enough, the liquid will the liquid camel will pass through the needle, but we think that might be cheating. We've got our lawyers looking into it. But a liquid camel's only part of it. I've also invested millions of dollars to build very large needles and very small camels. And unless I've completely missed the message of the Bible, somewhere in here is my ticket to heaven. So we're looking forward to a beautiful future here at the Hayward Foundation. We dream of a day when camels pass willy-nilly through the eye of needles, while billionaire industrialists like myself can look forward to an eternity spent in the pure white light of heaven. And if we can't get, camel, and if we can't get the camel through the needle... We have another plan. We're prepared to spend millions to get that part taken out of the Bible. Don't worry about me. While that skit is humorous, it's not far from reality. Just like John Hayward, just like the rich young ruler, we are mistaken about our own record. We think we can make really small camels and really big needles, and God's going to be pleased with us. But the last thing that this man is mistaken about, not just his understanding of goodness, not just his understanding of his own record, but he has a misunderstanding about Jesus. For this man, following Jesus was just something that he was going to add to his already good life. Christianity was an extracurricular activity that would put his resume over the top. His life was a 9 And he needed Jesus to get him to attend. Jesus was icing on the cake. It was not just that Christianity was something that he could add to his life. He also viewed following Jesus as something that he could accomplish, something that he could do. Following Jesus was a moral workout that needed conquering. Christianity to him was a program of scorekeeping. There were winners and losers. There were haves and haves nots But isn't that us too? We think, Jesus, would you just tell me what you want me to do? Would you give me a list of things that I could accomplish so that I will be okay? Will you tell me what sin I need to conquer? Will you tell me what book I need to read? Will you tell me what program I need to go through? But this man doesn't get it. He's got a misunderstanding of his goodness. He's got a misunderstanding of his own record. And he doesn't understand who Jesus is. And to expose these misunderstandings, Jesus shows him what it is that he lacks, and that leads us to our third question about this man: What does this man lack? After the man says he's kept the law since his youth, Jesus says, "Well, you lack one thing. Here's what you can do: since you are really good at law keeping, why don't you try this one on for size? Go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor." And then you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus exposes what this man lacks, and the rich young ruler decides that the price is too high. He's disheartened, and he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. In reality, he was a man whose possessions possessed him. What he owned really owned him, and he walks away from Jesus And at this point, a lot of sermons on this text will go down the road of, well, if you really want to follow Jesus, then go sell everything you have and follow him. Or it might sound something like this. What is the one thing that is standing between you and God? For this man, it was his money. For you, it might be something else. Go give away what you love most And follow Jesus. And so while it is true, it is true that God owns everything. And that we are commanded to live lives of generosity. And that following Jesus will always mean self-denial and sacrifice. I don't think that's the main point that Jesus is making to the rich young ruler in this passage. I don't think the first thing that we are to take away from this passage is that we need to be better rich young rulers and give it all up. Because how's that working out for any of us? Jesus is not telling the rich young ruler, you need more goodness. What he is telling the rich young ruler is that you need to come to grips with your badness. What does the rich young ruler lack? He lacks an understanding of his sin. He lacks an understanding of his need of a savior. Jesus is tearing down this mask of goodness that this man hides behind he's exposing how he's gotten it all wrong that he's actually not good at all he says do you see that what you were trusting in is your wealth you're trusting in your goodness you thinking that you've followed all of these commandments since your youth it wasn't about love for god this was a power play so you thought that you could get leverage with god The rich young ruler thought that Jesus needed his wealth and his power, that God needed what he had to offer, but Jesus exposes him. He shows him that the law is not up for revision. The law is not up for his redefinition. But there are two words that I want us to remember as we think about Jesus exposing this man, Jesus sending this man away. In verse 21, it says that Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This was an act of mercy for Jesus. It was an act of mercy for this man. Jesus loved him enough to bring him to the end of his delusion. Jesus loved him enough to smash his self-deception and his denial. Jesus loved him enough to show him his need and his badness. And Jesus loves you and I enough to do the same for us. How do you know when you've encountered your own badness? When you've encountered your own sin, it's when you hear the law of God and you give up. God's law is holy. God's law is good, and it is a gracious thing from the hand of God. God's law shows us what God is like. God's law shows us the character and the holiness of God. The law of God is a hammer, and it will break you, and it will show you how you cannot keep it in yourself. Martin Luther is famous for writing, the law says, do this, and it is never done. The law makes demands of us that we haven't and we cannot keep. The law of God tells you to love God alone, and it exposes how you worship little idols, how you worship little gods in your life, how you love other things. The law of God says that we are to love God with the entirety of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. that we are to love God completely and perpetually, not just to love God on Sunday, not just to love God for a period of time, that we are to love God in all of life, for all of life. The law of God says that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect So how do you know when you've heard the law of God as it was given for you? You've heard the law of God when it it makes you say, uncle. When it nails you to the wall and you say, I can't do this. I give up. When you are like the disciples at the end of this passage and you say that this is impossible. That my salvation is as impossible as a camel getting through the eye of a needle if I am left to myself. That if I am ever going to be saved, it must be a work of God. That if I am ever going to be in the kingdom of God, that God is the one who will have to do it. You've encountered the law when God graciously brings you to the end of yourself. The rich young ruler lacked an understanding of what God required of him. The rich young ruler had not heard the law of God. Is that where you are this morning? When you think of yourself in relation to God, do you think you're a pretty good person trying to get better? Are you looking for something to add to your record of morality? If so, perhaps in the mercy of Jesus, He will show you what it is that you lack. He will show you your sin. He'll be gracious and loving to you and reveal to you that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope except in his mercy to you. You know, I wish the story would have ended differently. I wish I could rewrite how the story goes. I wish the rich young ruler would have come back in tears, fallen on his knees and said, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But that's not how the story ends. It ends with a sad man And perplexed disciples. And so, what do we do? What do we do with this text? What I want us to see in this passage is that this is not a story of just one rich young ruler, but there are actually two rich young rulers in this passage. What gives us hope as we look at this passage is that we see Jesus, our Savior, as the true and better rich, young ruler, because he's the one in this story who has real wealth. He's the one in this story who has real power. He's the true rich, young ruler who really kept the law of God. He is the one who can say with complete and utter integrity, all of this I have done since my youth. He's the rich, young ruler that had it all. All of the glory, all of the power, all of the righteousness. He had everything. He gave it away. And who does he give it to? He gives it to the poor, to me and you. He gives it to his beloved children who can't and who won't get it right on their own. On the cross, Jesus, our rich young ruler, gave it all away. For you and me. He took the punishment for every way that you and I break the law of God, every way that we fail to do what God requires of us. And He gives us everything that is His His obedience, all of His righteousness, all of His holiness, all of the riches of the Father, eternal life, and the glory of heaven. All of that is given to us in Christ. He lost everything on the cross, so that he might make you and I and all who trust in him his treasure. The rich young ruler asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is, admit that you can't do anything to inherit eternal life and believe in the one who has done it all for you. Give up on your efforts to save yourself and look to Jesus to give you everything that you need. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have done all that is required for our salvation, what is impossible with us that you have done for us. You have lived the life that we could not live died in our place, and you give us your righteousness. And so, Lord, help us to believe that. Thank you that though you were rich for our sake, you became poor, so that in you we might be rich. And, Lord, help us to be generous people in all ways with what you have given to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.